Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Anthology of Horror. I am your host and narrator, spring Jack. To all new listeners, welcome. Thank you for joining us. To all seasoned listeners, thank you very much for continuing to tune back in. Appreciate it. Today I'm going to be discussing one of America's most notorious criminals, one of the best-known outlaws of the Old West, and that is uh, Mr. Jesse James of the James Younger Gang. World, world-renowned outlaw, Civil War veteran. This guy was involved in some pretty significant, uh, significant parts of history, at least for the American, American South and, well, fuck it, just for American general. Actually, he was involved in a shitload of stuff that went down in history. He's also credited by some as being a bit of a Robin Hood type figure in American history. Although, uh, we'll get into that, but I, I'll cover that. I'm not going to ruin it yet. But, let's just jump right into it here. As I said, when Jesse James was still alive, America loved him. Because there was an adventure to him in an otherwise dull, slowly turning scientific age. Late in America's second century of existence, the man rebelled against society that he hated, and for doing that, he became a folk hero. In the mid-1860s, journalists that were eager to entertain Easterners with the tales of the Wild West exaggerated and romanticized the gang's heist. Jesse James was touted as being the modern-day Robin Hood because it was said that he robbed from the rich and was kind to the poor. At the time, though, a lot of this was just blown out of proportion most of it. At this time, his exploits were relished by those who could do no more than fantasize about living such an adventurous life and shoving it straight up the Union Army's ass, which he was very good at. This obviously remains true today as thousands of people are intrigued by not only Jesse James, but by the many outlaws who carved out the Western Frontier. If you listen to the Billy Bonnie episode, you're one of them. However, while Jesse was a great many things, including sometimes being nice... Uh, he definitely was a suave dresser. He uh, he could put on some clothes. Supposedly he was a hell of a prankster too, although I don't know if I'd want him to prank me. He also, and it should not be overlooked, he was a cold-blooded murderer, a robber, a horse thief, and in today's terms, he was a fucking homegrown terrorist. And he and his gang, you probably wouldn't want to meet any of them. Jesse James' parents, Robert... Sally James and Zerelda Elizabeth Cole James were originally from fucking Stamping Ground, Kentucky, where the two met at a revival meeting. Now, I didn't know what a fucking revival meeting was, because I'm a barbarian, apparently. So let me get you the definition on that, because I'm sure... I would hope someone other than me doesn't know what that is. But it's a religious thing, that's a hint. Like <laughs> The... Definition online says a revival meeting is a series of Christian religious services held to inspire active members of a church body to gain new converts. What does that mean? Essentially, it's where they speak in tongues and fall over each other and shit, and I'm not going to make too much fun of somebody else's religion, but essentially what it was. So, they met at one of those. Hopefully they were laying hands on each other and shit, but... Alright, I'm done. They met at a revival meeting. And they got married on December 28th, 1841. Robert James continued his schooling, he was a very educated man, and graduated from Georgetown College. After Robert's graduation, the young family uh, relocated to Centerville area of Clay County, Missouri. Centerville later changed its name to Kearney. With the help of the neighbors, Robert and Zerelda, a.k.a. Z as she was more commonly known, built a log cabin in the wilderness and began to carve out a farm. Robert became the pastor of a small Baptist church outside of Kearney. Reverend James was a well-liked and respected man in the community who helped found William Jewell College in Liberty, Missouri. Z, who stood six feet tall, was known as a hard-working, very strong, and very strong-willed farm woman. Their first son was named Alexander Franklin, a.k.a. Frank James, and he was born at the family farm on January 10th, 1843. 
three more children quickly got cranked out by old Z and Robert. And they followed in this order. Robert James Jr. was born on July 19th, 1845, but died, unfortunately, 33 days later. Jesse Wooderson James was born on September 5th, 47. Susan Lavinia James was born on November 25th, 49. So in early 1850, the Reverend James was asked to serve as a chaplain on a wagon train of local men headed west to California in search of gold. Because, you know, the uh, gold rush was 49. This was 50, so they jumped on the bandwagon, quite literally. On April 12th, he left the farm in Z's care and headed west with the intent of preaching to the crowds of gold miners who had gathered there. And I'm sure he had the intention of taking some fucking gold home with him, too, on the way back. But, unfortunately, that was not to be. The minister never made it back to Missouri. I'd rather be dead in California than alive in Missouri. Shortly after arriving in California on August 1st, 1850, the Reverend contracted a fever, which when I first read this, I thought he had Giardia, which you can still die from today, but I was wrong. And as a result of drinking contaminated water, he died of cholera in Blackerville, California, which was a gold camp. I've never been there. I don't know where it is. And he was buried in an unmarked grave. Years later, young Jesse would go in search of his father's resting place, but failed. Story of my life. Zerelda inherited the farm, which she continued to own until her death late years later. But for a moment, she was a widow. She was left with three young children. Frank, the oldest one, was still only seven years old when his father died. So Zerelda, uh, she married a second time to a man named Benjamin Sims, who was a neighboring farmer. But they were married for a few years, and then they discovered that they fucking hated each other. Mainly because Sims' behavior towards the boys was just largely indifferent. His lack of affection for them and his use of uh, corporal punishment and beating them, uh, much to the dismay of Zerelda, resulted in the failure of the marriage. And as I said earlier, Z was considered a woman of very strong opinions and she was taken seriously, which was rare for the time, especially in this area. And she had several arguments with her husband and Zerelda just finally got tired of it. She filed for a divorce on her own accord and they listened to her, which was unusual in both cases for the time. Uh, it didn't prove necessary though since Sims was killed in a mysterious horse accident in 1854. And I could find no information about that mysterious horse accident. I imagine it was probably like the, uh, he fell off the horse and his gun went off three times. One of those. I think someone, someone forced him to have the accident. A third marriage to Darchy, Darchy, excuse me, a third marriage to Dr. Archie Reuben Samuels took place in 1855. The physician was a well-to-do, docile man, and he allowed his wife to make all the important family decisions. He actually preferred it. When it came to the children, he didn't have a single thing to say, and Z made all the decisions. Dr. Samuels just quietly purchased additional adjoining property, and the, the James Holding and farmland grew. So, to keep up with the demand of farmland that needed to be worked, they purchased people to help them in the running of the farm, which... still can't believe that shit. In his youth, Frank was said to be a bit of a bookworm. He was a withdrawn, Bible-reading boy who developed an interest in his late father's sizable library, particularly the works of old Billy Shakespeare. Frank reportedly wanted to become a schoolteacher, and uh, his little brother, on the other hand, was the complete opposite. He was kind of a wild child, and Jesse was described as a generous, noble-hearted, and assertive prankish boy. Dr. Samuel taught both the boys horseback riding and shooting skills, both boys worked on the farm through their teenage years, enjoying a normal family life. In 1861, Frank turned 18, and any thoughts of pursuing higher education came to an end, unfortunately, because of the Missouri conflict, which was a conflict of violence immediately tied with the Civil War. But the reason that it happened was because Missouri was torn in two different directions. Some people agreed with the North, some people agreed with the South. The majority of the state settlers came from the South, but the economy was linked to the North. So Missouri voted against seceding from the Union, and there was a significant number of people that supported the Confederacy, though, in the state, which led to the formation of two separate governments operating in the same entity with different allegiances. 
The James family, on both the paternal and the maternal side, had been slave owners for years, which kind of made it clear which one they were going to pick. The Missourians would serve in the armies of both sides of the war until its end in 1865. Frank joined the Missouri State Guard on May 4th, 1861, fighting for the Confederacy. And these these were like loosely sanctioned militias that were kind of approved by the operating military group. They were... Imagine that... Imagine there's a civil war being fought here. Just, just for the sake of clear illustration, I'm not saying this is how it would go. Just imagine the army is fighting the National Guard. I realize they're part of the same entity, but imagine the Army National Guard is separated from the Army active duty troops, and they're fighting each other. And then all those guys that you see, like... Just imagine your NRA people that you know, guys that... AR-15 owners. Think about those guys. If they gave them uniforms and loosely militarized them, like, didn't train them, but just said, like, okay, you guys are the California 2nd Brigade, and then just kind of gave them free reign to fucking lead raids on military outposts and shit, it's not going to be good. In most cases. Uh, They were poorly trained, didn't necessarily understand the laws. They were... A lot of them were just there for wrong reason, which was... A lot of uh, financial gain they were hoping for, I think. But I'll get into that, too. So he joined the Missouri State Guard on the 4th of May, fighting for the Confederacy. In 1862, it turns out that Dr. Archie Reuben Samuel had a uh, had a child with one of the slave girls. Which, uh, I think that's pretty fucking awful. But they, in his credit... Um, yeah, in the cre- in defense of the guy that raped his slave, he did raise the boy as part of the family, which I wouldn't have bet on, but it doesn't make it all right. However, while in the Missouri State Guard, Frank served at the Battle of Lexington, where an estimated 1,700 Union troops were massacred. It was a surprising victory for the State Guard, and the Confederates took control of southwest Missouri in October of 1861 as a result. At some point after the battle, Frank returned home, presumably because he got hurt or he was sick. And then he was promptly arrested by a local militia group of Union supporters. And he was released because he signed a piece of paper promising that he gave his allegiance to the Union. But by July 1862, he had instead joined Missouri Partisan Rangers of William Clark Quantrill. Quantrill. Quantrill's raiders were Confederacy supporters who used brutal guerrilla tactics. They were active in the border war between Missouri and Kansas, and they were attacking both regular Union Army and various militia of Union supporters and whatnot in both states. They were fucking ruthless. This guy had quite the reputation. Quantrill's raids gained the attention of other desperados, and in 1863, he recruited others who joined his company, including Bloody Bill Anderson, the James Brothers, the Younger Brothers, and many more bloodthirsty outlaws to come. In the summer of 1863, old Quantrill set his sights on Lawrence, Kansas, the location of his most infamous raid. So, he was trying to get revenge for something that the Union militia had done uh, earlier in this war, and that was the massacre of Osceola, which was... uh, It was pretty fucking terrible, but... They were mad about this for years. It stirred hatred in most of the Missouri citizens, and it would become the the primary cause for the raid that I'm about to talk about two years later. Uh, he was... Uh, the general that was in charge of the sacking of Osceola was named Lane, and he was severely criticized for his actions in Osceola uh, pretty much because he got caught. He's a fucking cunt about this, so... This was after the battle. This is Osceola. This is the backstory as to why they were attacking that Kansas town. After the Battle of Wilson's Creek, Missouri, on August 10th, 1861, the Union Army retreated and left Kansas's border exposed. To com- combat this, General Lane organized his men and led them into action against a Confederate general named General Price. And that was called the Battle of Drywood Creek. On September 2nd, 61, although his troops lost the battle, Lane continued continued on just fighting and pillaging in towns of Panisville, 
Butler, Harrisonville, and Clinton, Missouri, before he finally got to Osceola on September 23, 1861. At that time, it was a very prosperous town. It had over 2,000 people, and though the vast majority of its able-bodied men were off to war, so it was predominantly women and children, or weak men. After exchanging several shots with some Confederates on the outskirts of town, Lane's brigade entered the settlement with two pieces of large artillery and immediately began to ransack the town, starting with the bank. Okay, makes sense. I'm I'm with it up until this point. So they blew up the safe, and they were quickly put into a fucking inbred rage when there was no money in there, only documents. Allegedly, the citizens of Osceola, having heard of the incoming soldiers looting and ransacking everything, had buried the money some point before their arrival. So, suck it, Lane. And uh, sentries were posted at this point at the town entrance points to stop anyone from approaching and anybody from leaving, or they would be fired upon. Enraged at seeing the, the empty safe, Lane ordered his men to pillage and burn the entire town. The courthouse was broken open, and just... Just to be mean-spirited, the county records were all burned individually. Stores and private homes were pillaged and torched. Buildings were bombarded with cannon blasts. All of them. It was not long before the city was a smoking mass of ruin. Uh, if this wasn't enough of an atrocity, there were 12 men that, had, that were still hanging out, I guess, in the town. And they were given, like, it was described as a sarcastic trial. Or a joke of a trial. But I imagine, uh... If you've seen, what's that movie with the Batman movie with Bane, where they have this is merely a sentencing hearing, the scarecrow sentencing people that were deemed enemies of the state and they make them walk the ice. It was a joke of a fucking trial. They just put him in the center of town allegedly, and General Lane asked them why they'd fired upon uh, federal troops, and somebody made the comment that they didn't see any federal troops, and then uh, that wasn't amusing to them either. So, they were convicted of treason at this uh, farce of a trial and condemned to death by firing squad. Uh, the firing squad, allegedly, the General Lane took part in. And they did such a great job with the firing squad, three men would live. Uh, but Lane wasn't aware of it, or he probably would have come back to kill him. Because uh, dead men don't testify. Finally... At the end of all this, Lane's men brought their frenzy of pillaging and murder to a close by celebrating getting drunk. Uh, they got so drunk that, according to reports, many of the men couldn't march when it came time to leave, and many had to ride in wagons and carriages. With them, they took plunder, including Lane's personal share, which included a piano and a, quant uh, a huge quantity of silk dresses. I hope for him. I hope that bitch put those on. The troops then continued to Kansas City, Missouri. The settlement suffered more than a million dollars of the time's worth of damages, including the belongings that belonged to pro-union citizens. So, I wonder how much that was. That was a million dollars in 1861. That is two billion and a quarter and three quarters. Wow, two and three quarter billion. Two two billion. $785,454.55. Son of a bitch, that's a lot of money. Well, somehow he managed to take that out of that town, as well as the lives of a bunch of people that were there. So, lingering fury regarding this massacre stirred hatred in Missouri citizens and would become the primary reason for Old Willie Quantrill's raid on Lawrence, Kansas. So... Brutal. That was a douche. All right. On the morning of August 21st, 1863, Quantrill, along with his murderous force of 300... I'm just going to take this time and say that the Greeks invented murderous forces of 300. They descended on the still-sleeping town of Lawrence... Incensed by the Free State Headquarter Town, Quantrill set out on his revenge plot against what they called the Jayhawker community. And I'll spare you the long, miserable backstory behind the fucking name, but Jayhawker really just meant that they, uh, they hawked Jays. It, it was just what they called the uh, pro-North federal supporters. 
and they, as Southern supporters, were called Bushwhackers, which I think is uh, far cooler than Jayhawker. In this carefully orchestrated plan, the early morning raid that he and his band had planned, it, it wasn't supposed to take this long, but it ended up taking four brutal fucking hours, and it turned the town into a bloody, blazing inferno unparalleled in its brutality. It's one of the worst massacres on American soil, and that's including the Indian Wars. Quantrill and his bushwhacker mob of raiders began their reign of terror at 5 a.m., looting and burning as they went, bent on destruction of the town that uh, was no less than 3,000 residents at the time. The town was huge. By the time it was over, they'd killed what was guessed to be 180 men, left Lawrence nothing more than a smoldering ruin. Frank and... Frank James and Cole Younger were there with Quantrill during the raid. Although there's no evidence that Jesse was there, he was said to have bragged about it later. And this conflict became known as the Lawrence Massacre. And it was indeed fucking brutal. But brutality's my middle name, so let's look at it in depth. So as I said, the destruction of Lawrence had no doubt been long contemplated by the rebels at the border. Ever since the war had commenced, rumors had been constantly circulating of the maturing of such a purpose. Each rumor called forth efforts toward defense. The people had become so accustomed to alarms that they were pretty much unaffected by them. At several times, the prospect had been absolutely threatening. This was especially the case after the Battle of Springfield and again after the capture of Lexington by rebel soldiers. The people had never felt more secure than a few months preceding the raid of Lawrence in August of 63. The power of the rebellion was broken in Missouri and federal forces were on the border. While it could prevent deprivations by small gangs, it seemed to be sufficiently vigilant to prevent the gathering of a large force. No rumors of danger had been received for several months. Still, many citizens did not feel the place was entirely safe. The mayor, early in the summer, prevailed upon military authorities to station a squad of soldiers in Lawrence just to be sure. The soldiers were under the command of Lieutenant Hadley, who was very efficient, it says. Lieutenant Hadley had a brother on one of the general's staffs, and... About the 1st of August, this brother wrote him that his spies had been in Quantrill's camp, they had mingled freely with his men, and had learned from Quantrill's clerk that they proposed to make a raid on Lawrence about the full of the moon, which would be three weeks before the actual raid. He told his brother to do all that he could to prepare for the defense of the town, to fight them to the last man and never be taken prisoner, lest he fear what they do to him, for Quantrill slowly killed all prisoners. Lieutenant Hadley showed the letter to the mayor, who at once set about work of putting the town in a state of defense. The militia was called out. Pickets were detailed. The cannons got ready, and the countryside was warned to come to the town. So, had Quantrill's gang come according to promise, they would have been welcomed with bloody hands and hospitable graves. Someone asked Quantrill, when in Lawrence, why he did not come back before when he said he would. He replied, You were expecting me then, but I have caught you napping now. It may be asked why the people of Lawrence relaxed their vigilance so soon after receiving such authentic evidence of his intention. The city and military authorities made the fatal mistake of keeping the ground of apprehension as a profound secret. Nobody knew the reason of the preparations. It's fucking dumb. Rumors were afloat, but they could not be traced to any reliable source. Companies came in from the country, but they could not ascertain why they were sent into this quiet town and went home to be laughed at by their neighbors for their readiness. Unable to find any ground of alarm, people soon began to think that the rumors were just like any other false alarm which they'd been periodically disturbed with for the last two years. The course of the military authorities tended to strengthen this view. Mayor Collimore sent to Fort Leavenworth for cannon and more troops. They were at once sent over, but were met at Lawrence by a dispatch from Kansas City ordering them back to Fort Leavenworth. A few days after, the squad of soldiers under Lieutenant Hadley were ordered away. That was the town garrison guard. It was evident, therefore, that the military authorities of Kansas City, who ought to know, did not consider the place in danger at all, or they didn't care. But I don't think they knew. The usual sense of security soon returned. Citizens were assured that Quantrill could not penetrate the military line that was on the border without detection. They felt sure, too, that he could not travel 50 miles through a loyal country, or a loyal county, without them being informed of the approach of danger. The people never felt more secure and never less prepared than the night of the raid. Quantrill assembled his gang about noon the day before the raid, 
and started towards Kansas about 2 o'clock. They crossed the border between 5 and 6 and struck directly across the prairie towards Lawrence. He passed through Gardner on Old Santa Fe Wagon Road about 11 o'clock at night. Here they burned down a few houses and killed one or two citizens. You know, typical good time shit. And then they passed through Hesper, 10 miles southeast of Lawrence, between 2 and 3 o'clock. The moon was now down, and the night was very dark, and the road was doubtful. They took a little boy from a house on Captain's Creek uh, nearby and compelled him to guide them into Lawrence. They kept the boy during their work in Lawrence, and then Quantrill dressed him in a new suit of clothes, gave him a horse, and sent him home. I would imagine that's probably he shot him in the head. I don't believe that for a minute. They entered Franklin at the first glimmer of day. They passed quietly through, lying upon their horses so not to, uh, so to attract as little attention as possible. The command, however, was distinctly heard. Run on, boys. It will be daylight before we are there. We ought to have been there an hour ago. From here it began to grow light, and they traveled a lot faster. When they first came inside of the town, they stopped. Many were inclined to waver. They said they would be cut to pieces, and it was madness to go on. Quantrill finally declared that he was going in, and they might follow who did. Two horsemen were sent ahead to see if all was quiet in the town. The horsemen rode through the town and back without attracting attention, and they were seen going through Main Street, but their appearance there at the hour was nothing unusual. At the house of Reverend S. Snyder, a gang turned aside from the main body, entered his yard, and just for the fuck of it, shot him, because he was a prominent minister among the United Brethren. He held a commission as a lieutenant in the 2nd Colored Regiment, which probably accounts for why they were so shitty to him, because he was in charge of black troops. Shit. Their progress from here was quite rapid, but cautious. Every now and then they checked up their horses, as if fearful to proceed. They were seen approaching by several people in the outskirts of town, but in the dimness of the morning and distance they were supposed to be Union troops. Because there's no way that fucking Confederates could have crossed the goddamn border, so they thought they were Federal troops. Alarm wasn't raised. They passed on, in a body, in a whole unit, until they came to higher ground facing the main street. And then the command was given, rush the town. And instantly, they rushed forward with the scream of demons. The attack was perfectly planned. Every man knew his place, and detachments scattered to every section of the town. They were all taking a, taking a, they were doing the Petraeus technique, where they were all taking a section. Every man knew his place, detachments scattered to every section of the town, and it was done with such promptness and speed that before people could gather their meaning after the first yell, every part of the town was full of fucking Confederate soldiers. They flowed into every street. Eleven rushed up Mount Oriade, from which all roads leading into the town could be seen for several miles out, and these were to keep watch on the country roads that came into the town, uh, like I said, so that people wouldn't gather and come in to help them, and if they did, they would shoot on them just to keep them out of town. Another and larger squad struck for the west part of town, while the main body, by two or three converging streets, made for the hotel. They first came upon a group of recruits for the Kansas 14th. On these, they fired... As they passed, they killed 17 out of the 22. Uh, this attack did not in the least check the speed of the general advance. A few turned aside to run down and shoot fugitive soldiers, but the company rushed on at a command. To the hotel, which could be heard all over the town. In all the bloody scenes which followed, nothing equaled in wildness and terror that which now presented itself. The horsemanship of the guerrillas was flawless. They rode with that ease and abandon which are acquired only by those who have spent a lifetime in the saddle amid desperate scenes. The horses scarcely seemed to touch the ground, and the riders sat with bodies and arms perfectly free, revolvers, full cock, shooting at every house and every man they passed, and yelling like banshees at every bound. On each side of the stream of fire, as it poured towards the street, there were men falling dead and wounded, and women and children half-dressed, running and screaming, some trying to escape from danger and rushing to the side of their murdered friends. They dashed along the main street, shooting at everyone on the sidewalk and into almost every window. They halted in front of Eldridge House. The firing had ceased and all was quiet for a few minutes. They evidently expected resistance here and they sat gazing at the windows above them, apparently in fearful suspense. In a few moments, Captain Banks, Provost Marshal of the State, opened a window and displayed the white flag and called for Quantrill. 
Quattro rode forward, and Banks, a provost marshal, surrendered the house, stipulating the safety of its inmates. At this moment, the big gong in the hotel began to sound through the house to arouse the sleepers. At this time, the whole column fell back, evidently thinking it was a signal for an attack from the hotel. In a few moments, meeting with no resistance, they pressed forward again and commenced to work of plunder and destruction. They ransacked the hotel, robbed the rooms and the inmates. Uh, the inmates, they gathered together at the head of the stairs, and when the plundering was done, marched them to the street under guard. They had proceeded a little distance. A ruffian rode up and ordered a young man out of the ranks and fired two shots at him, but with no effect. One of the guards at once interposed and threatened to kill the ruffian if one of the prisoners was molested. Quantrill then rode up and told them that the city hotel on the riverbank would be protected because he was boarded there some years ago and he had been treated well. That's surprisingly cool too. He ordered the prisoners to go there and stay in and they would all be safe. The prisoners were as obedient to his orders as any of Quantrill's own men would have been and they lost no time in gaining the house of refuge. That's surprisingly fucking nice. The treatment of the prisoners at the Elder's house shows that he expected resistance, at least from that point on, and they were relieved by the offer of surrender. They not only promised protection, but they were good as their word, and he kept his word. Other hotels received no such favors and had no such experience of rebel honor, unfortunately, though. At the Johnson house, they shot all that showed themselves, and the prisoners that were finally taken and marched off were shot a few rods out of the house, uh, some of them among the fires of burning buildings. Such was the common fate of those who surrendered themselves as prisoners. Mr. R.C. Dix was one of these. His house was the nest door to the Johnson house, and being fired at his own house, he escaped to the Johnson house, which I imagine is a hotel. All of the men were ordered to surrender, all we want, said a rebel, is for the men to give themselves up and we will spare them and burn the house. Mr. Dix and others gave themselves up. They marched towards they marched them towards the center of town. And when they'd gone about 200 feet, the guard shot all of them, one after another. Mr. Hampson, one of the number, fell wounded and pretended to be dead till he could escape without being seen. A brother of Mr. Dix remained in the shop and was shot four times through the window and fell helpless. With the building burning over his head, he was compelled to drag himself out into the next building, which fortunately was not burned. The air was so still that one building did not catch from another, which was unfortunate for them, I guess. After the Eldritch House surrendered and all fears of resistance were removed, the ruffians scattered in small gangs to all parts of the town in search of plunder and blood. The order was burn every house and kill every man. Almost every house was visited and robbed, and the men found in them killed or left. It depended uh, on the character or the whim of the captors. Some of these, some of the guys seemed completely brutalized, while others showed some signs of re re remaining humanity. One lady said that as gang after gang came to the house, she always met them herself and tried to get them talking. If she only got them to talk, she could get at what little humanity was left in them and the ladies faced them boldly. Uh, they, they fared the best. They left them alone. It's doubtful whether the world has ever witnessed such a scene of horror, certainly not outside the uh, back pages of savage warfare history. History gives no parallel where an equal number of such desperate men so heavily armed were let perfectly loose on an unsuspecting community. Well, at least in America, I imagine that Nan King was ten times, if not a million times worse. The carnage was much worse from the fact that the citizens could not believe these men could be such fiends. Nobody expected They didn't expect an indiscriminate slaughter. Maybe the burning of the town, yeah, but not this. When it was known that the town was in their possession, everybody expected that they would rob and burn the town, kill all the military men they could find, and a few marked characters too. But few expected a wholesale fucking slaughterhouse. Many who could have escaped, therefore, remained and were slain for the fuck of it. For this reason, the colored people fared better than the white people. The knew the men... They knew the men which slavery had made, and they ran to the bush at the first alarm. They were the smartest. A gentleman who was concealed where he could see the hole said the scene presented was the most perfect realization of the slang phrase hell let loose that he could ever imagine. Most of the men had the look of wild beasts. They dressed roughly, swore terribly, had huge, unkempt beards. 
They were mostly armed with carbine rifles and with two to six revolvers strapped around them like fucking pirates. And the surprise was so complete that no organized resistance could possibly be formed. Before people could fully comprehend the state of the case, every part of the town was full of rebels. And there was no possibility of rallying. Even the recruits in the camp were so taken by surprise that they, they weren't in their place. The attack could scarcely have been made at a worse hour for the town, but a great hour for the rebels. The soldiers had just taken in their camp guard, and people were waking from sleep. And by some fatal mistake, the authorities had kept the arms of the city in the public armory instead of each of the men's houses. There could be no general resistance, therefore, from the houses. When the rebels gained possession of the main street, the armory was inaccessible to the citizens, and it was at the disposition of the squads of rebels in other parts of the town. It prevented even one partial rally being made. There was no time or opportunity for a consultation or concert of action, and every man had to do the best that he could for himself. A large number, however, did actually start with what arms they had towards the street, most saw at once that the street could not be reached and they turned back. Some went forward and perished, uh, but most ran away. Mr. Levi Gates. Mr. Levi Gates lived about a mile in the country, in the opposite direction of which the rebels had entered the town. So as soon as he heard the gunfire from the town, he started towards the town with his rifle, supposing that a stand was being made by the citizens. But when he got to town, he saw at once the rebels had possession of the entire town and it was probably not good, not, not likely to take it back. But he was an excellent mark, marksman and he could not leave without trying to shoot one of them with his rifle. Uh, the first shot that he made hit one of the rebel soldiers in the ass who jumped out of his saddle and fell on the ground but it did not kill him so he ran over and humanely beat him to death with the butt of his rifle. A one Mr. G.W. Bell was a county clerk. He lived on the side hill overlooking the town. He saw the rebels before they made their charge, so he seized his musket and the cartridge box with the hopes of reaching the main street before they did. His family endeavored to dissuade him, telling him that he would certainly be killed, and they didn't want him to go. They may kill me, but they cannot kill the principles in which I fight for. If they take Lawrence, they must do so over my dead body. His last words with a prayer for courage and prayer for help he started but he was too late the street was occupied long before he could reach it he endeavored then to get round by the back way and come to the ravine west of the street here he met other citizens and he asked where shall we meet they assured him it was too late to meet anywhere and urged him to save himself he turned back apparently intending to get home again uh, the rebels were scattered in all directions and he was in the middle of them a friend urged him to throw his musket away, which he did. Finding escape impossible, he went into an unfinished brick house and got up on the, uh, the scaffolding-type shit above it. Together with another man, a rebel came in and began shooting at him. He interceded for his friend and soon found that the rebel was an old acquaintance who he had often, he, they'd often eaten dinner with each other, I guess they were friends. He appealed to him in such a way that he promised to spare both of their lives for old times' sake if they would come down. They came down, and the rebel took them out about... They took them out to about 20 of his companions outside. Shoot him, was the cry at once. He asked for a moment to pray, which they granted, and then they shot him with all the rifles present. His companion was wounded and left for dead, but afterwards recovered. The treacherous rebel who deceived and murdered him afterwards went to his house and was said to his wife, who was ignorant of her husband's death, we have killed your husband, and now we've come to burn his house. They fired on the house, but the family survived, and they tried to burn the house down, but the family put the fire out. Damn. Mr. Bell was a man of excellent character and left a wife and six children to miss and mourn him. What little resistance was offered to the rebels developed their cowardice. As much of their general license given them... As much as their general license given them developed their brutality... On the opposite bank of the river, 12 soldiers were stationed. When the rebels first came to town, they filed down Massachusetts Street. They even attempted to cut the rope to the ferry. But these brave boys on the opposite side made free use of their rifles, firing at every fuckboy that came into sight. Their mini balls, which were the, the ammunition of the time, went screaming up the street, and it was not many minutes before the section of the town was pretty much deserted, 
and if one of the ruffians by chance passed along that way, he was careful not to expose himself to the bullets that came from across the river. The result was, all that section of the town which stretched along the riverbank was safe because of 12 guys that held him off. In this section stood Governor Robinson's house, which was inquired for. Here was the armory which they took possession of earlier, but left with most of the guns unharmed. Another evidence of their pussy bullshit was shown in the fact that a few stone houses, or that very few stone houses were molested. They shunned almost all houses which were closed tightly so that they could not see in. When the inmates did not show themselves, there in a deep ravine, wooded but narrow, which runs almost through the center of town in which many citizens escaped, they often chased men into this ravine, shooting at them all the way, but they never followed them into the ravine itself, fearing an ambush. They never followed them up the brink. Whenever they came near it, they would shy off as if expecting a stray shot. The cornfield west of the town was full of refugees. The rebels rode up to the edge often as if longing to go in and butcher those who had escaped, but a wholesome fear that it might uh, might turn into another ambush. A Mrs. Hindman lived on the edge of the cornfield. They came repeatedly to her house for water. <laughs> the gang insisted on knowing uh, what was in the cornfield. The brave woman replied, Go in and find out. You'll find the hottest place you have ever been. She wasn't a very well-spoken lady, I guess. Having been to carry drinks to the refugees, she could testify to the heat. The rebels took her word, and they just left. So every little ravine and thicket around the outskirts of town, they were shunned, as if a viper had been in it. So scores of lives were saved by people that were just hiding. Well, that was easy. In almost every case, which... where a determined resistance was offered, the rebels, rebels just pulled out. Mr. A.K. Allen lives in a large brick house. A gang came to his door and ordered him out. He said, no, if you want anything, come where I am. I'm good for five of you. They took his word for it, and he and his house were left unmolested. There were two federal employees, it's unspecified what kind, and they were on the street trying to get into a certain house so they could hide when they were overtaken by six rebel soldiers. They at once faced their foes, drew their revolvers, and began to shoot at them when the whole of all six of them started fucking fleeing. Unbelievable. Two guys stood down, six, with gun. One gun each. The cowards evidently did not come back to fight, but to murder and steal. Fucked up, man. While I can only give a few incidents of the massacre as specimens of the whole, the scenes of horror that I describe must be multiplied until the account... Until the total number reaches 180, which was the official number of killed men. General Collimore, mayor of the city, was awakened by the shouts around the house. His house was evidently well known, and they struck for it to prevent him taking measures of defense. When, but when he looked out, the house was surrounded and escape was impossible. There was only one hiding place, and that was the well. So he at once went to the well. The enemy went into the house and searched for the owner, swearing and threatening the entire time. They failed to find him. They fired upon the house staff, and they waited around as they burned the house down as well. Mrs. Collimore went out and spoke to her husband while the fire was burning, but the house was so near the well that when the flames burst out, they shot over the well and the fire fell in. When the flames subsided, so that the well could be approached, nothing could be seen of Mr. Collimore or the men who had descended into the well with him. After the rebels had gone, Mr. Lowe, an intimate friend of General Collimore, went at once down the well to seek him. The rope supporting him was weakened by the fire. It broke, so he also died in the well, and three bodies were drawn from its cold water. At Dr. Griswold's, there were four families, and the doctor and his lady had just returned the evening before from a visit east. Honorable S.M. Thorpe, state senator, Mr. J.C. Trask, editor of the state journal, Mr. H.W. Baker was a grocer, with their wives, they were all boarding in Dr. Griswold's family's house, and the house was attacked about the same time as General Collimore's. They called for the men to come out, and when they did not obey very readily, they assured them that they should not be harmed if the citizens quietly surrender, it might save the town. The idea brought them out at once, and Mr. Trask said, If it will help save the town, let us go. They went down the stairs and out the door, and the ruffians ordered them all to get in a line and to march before them towards the town. 
They had scarcely gone 20 feet from the yard before all four of them were gunned down. Dr. Griswold and Mr. Trask were killed at once. Mr. Thorpe and Mr. Baker wounded, but apparently dead, a little later on. So the ladies attempted to reach their husbands from the house, and they were driven back by gunfire. The guard was stationed just below, and every time any of the ladies attempted to come from the house to their dying friends, the guard would dash at them at full speed and sword drawn. And with oaths and threats, drive them back to the house, and sometimes bullets. After the bodies had lain for about an hour or so, a gang rode up, rolled them over, and shot them again. Mr. Baker received his only dangerous wound at this shot. After shooting the men, the ruffians went in and robbed the house. They demanded personal jewelry from all the women. Mrs. Trask begged for the privilege of retaining her wedding ring. You've killed my husband, let me keep the ring. No matter, replied, replied the heartless fiend, and he snatched the relic from her hand. Dr. Griswold was one of the principal druggists of the place. Mr. Thorpe, the state senator, Mr. Trask, editor of the state journal, and Mr. Baker, one of the leading grocers in the place. Mr. Thorpe lingered in great pain until the next day where he died. Mr. Baker, after long suspense, recovered. Uh, he was only shot through the lung. The most brutal murder was that of Judge Carpenter. Several gangs called at his house and robbed him of all he had, but many of them were put off by his kind attitude. He was nice to all of them, and it was too much for them, so they felt guilty and they left him alive and his house standing. But unfortunately, he almost made it through, except later in the night, another gang came through, and they were uh, a little meaner than the earlier ones, I guess. They started when he approached them by asking him where he was from, and he said, New York. Somebody else said, one of the rebels, it's all these New York fuckers that are doing all this mischief, and he drew his revolver and shot him. Mr. Carpenter, still alive, ran in the house, up the stairs, and then down again. The ruffians went in after him, firing at every turn. He finally eluded them and slipped into his cellar. He was pretty pretty badly wounded. Uh, so, so badly wounded, in fact, that his blood lay in pools in the cellar where he had stood for a few moments. His hiding place was soon discovered, and he was driven out of the cellar, into the yard, and shot again. He fell mortally wounded. His wife threw herself onto him and covered him with her person to shield him from further violence. Uh, they deliberately walked around her to find a place to shoot under her and finally raised her arm and put his revolver underneath her arm and fired so she could see the ball enter his head. Then they burned the house down. But through the energy of the wife's sister, the fire was extinguished. Wow, the judge had been married for less than a year. He was a young man but had already won considerable distinction in his profession. He had held the office of probate judge for Douglas County, and a year before that was a candidate for the Attorney General of the state. Oh man, big deal. Mr. Fitch was called downstairs and just shot on sight. Although the second ball was probably fatal, they continued to fire at him until they lodged six or eight bullets into his lifeless corpse, Then they began to burn his house down. Mrs. Flitch endeavored to drag the remains of her husband from the house, but was not allowed to do so. She then endeavored to save his wedding ring, but was also forbidden to do that. Um. So they continued to burn the house down. And she was stupefied by the scene and the brutality exhibited towards her. She stood there gazing at the strange work going on around her and was completely unaware of her position or her danger. Finally, one of the fucking ruffians compelled her to leave the house, or she would have been consumed with the rest. Uh, she was driven out of the house, went and sat down with her three, three children in front, and watched the house consumed over the remains of her husband. Mr. Fitch was a young man of excellent character and spirit, and he was one of the first settlers of Florence, and he was the preschool, or the equivalent thereof, preschool teacher in the place of Lawrence. James Perini... Perini and James Eldridge were clerks in the county store. They were sleeping in the store when the attack was made, and they could not escape. The rebels came into the store, ordered them to open the safe, promising to spare their lives. They did so. The moment the safe doors flew open, they shot both of them dead and left them on the floor. And they were both promising young men, 17 years old. Mr. Burt was standing by a fence when one of the rebels rode up to him and demanded his money. He handed them his pocketbook, and the rebel took the pocketbook with one hand and shot Mr. Burt with the other. Mr. Murphy, a short distance up the same street, was asked for a drink of water, and as the fiend took the cup with his left hand, he shot the benefactor with the right. Mr. Murphy was over 65 years of age. Mr. Ellis, a German blacksmith, ran into the corn in the park 
took his little child with him. And for some time he remained concealed because they were scared of the corn. But the child grew weary and began to cry. The rebels outside, hearing the cries, ran in and killed the father and left the child in the dead father's arm. Mr. Albach, a German, was sick in bed and they ordered his house cleared that they might burn it. The family carried out the sick man on a mattress, laid him in the yard. When the rebels came out and killed him on the bed because he was unable to rise, this is just a small example of the types of cruelty to which the savages uh, did at Lawrence. And this, what I'm reading right now is snippets from a letter that somebody wrote a few days after it and said to the president. So sorry about some of the uh, clever wording, but this is testimony of the time. One of the guerrillas went to the stable of J.G. Sands, corner of Pickney and Tennessee Streets, stole his carriage and pet pony, named Freddy. While engaged in this activity, four others came up the alley. One of them was heard to say, Why in the fuck are these houses not burnt? He dismounted to execute the threat. They were met by Freddy, running past them, who had escaped from the captor, and they were urged to assist in securing the runaway. At once, remounting, they all followed him, who led them away from this part of town, and before he was once again secured, they were engaged in other scenes of murder. This providential escape of the pony undoubtedly saved not only the houses, but also the lives of Dr. Fuller and Dr. Fuller, uh, one B.W. Woodward, and J.G. Sands. H. Sargent was on New Hampshire Street below Winthrop and Henry early in the day. The guerrillas entered the house, robbed the inmates of all their valuables. Uh, Notice was given to remove the furniture as the house would be burned down. Before applying the torch, one of the parties assisted in carrying out the piano. During the burning, Mr. Sargent, Charlie Palmer, and Mr. Young printer were in the yard, and Mrs. Sargent, a sister of J.G. Sands, and Mrs. Mary Hannum. The squad of ruffians fired a volley into the men, killing Palmer, wounding Mr. Sargent, but missing Mr. Young, who dropped and pretended to be dead. Noticing life in Mr. Sargent, one of the men coolly reloaded his pistol, saying he would soon finish it. Mrs. Sargent at once fell on her husband's prostrate body, begging for his life, but the murderer placed the pistol above her shoulder and sent the ball crashing through his head, too. Mr. Sargent survived. Only for 11 days, though. But this time, the body of Mr. Young was terribly scorched by his nearness to the building. But his presence of mind saved him. The ladies dragged him into the woods and lined the other bodies, covered him with a sheet, and they weren't molested after that. The courage shown by these ladies is seldom matched by soldiers in the excitement of battle. On every side, men were falling. Close to them, Mr. Williamson was killed. Uh, Near them, Mr. Hay was shot down. Bullets were flying all around them, but they stood guard over the dead and the dying. Balls of these women must have, must have been huge. The residence of F.W. Reed was probably visited by more squads than any other place as it was situated in the heart of the city. Several different bands called there that evening. Mr. Reed had been drilled with his company the day before and had left his gun in the store. He started to go get it, but was met at the door by robbers and retreated back into the house. He ran up the stairs and raised his head up to look out the window when a bullet struck the window, still within six inches of his right eye. The squad piled bedding and books at the foot of the stairs, set it on fire to burn him out, but Mrs. Reed put the fire out. The balls on these women are huge. The next squad were stealing and demanding, as they all did fire their arms at first. The next squad were for stealing. Oh, so the next squads that followed were for stealing after demanding, as they all did, by firing their arms. I got you. Okay. They wanted money next, and then helped themselves to whatever they could find. They found backside of the bureau drawer, a little box containing a pair of gold and coral armlets used to loop up the dress at the shoulder of the little girl Addie who had died a few months before. Mrs. Reed begged very hard that they would please not take them as they belonged to her dead child and wanted them to remember her by, but the brute replied with an oath of damn your dead body, she doesn't need them. The next squad went into the bedroom, turned all the clothes, uh, turned the clothes all down, one took a big bowie knife and cut through the mattress, for a yard while another lit a match and set it on fire. It proved to be a hair mattress and would not burn. Ha! They set the clothing on fire instead, but it got put out. The next squad that rode up came into the house, uh, looked around, seemed satisfied that there wasn't much left, worth carrying off, and on looking around, he coolly said, This is all I want, madam, and stepped up to the piano and with one jerk pulled off the piano cover, put the 
fuck? Which was new and a very nice one, and walked out. What the fuck, dude? He took the saddle from his horse and put it on for a saddle plan. Are you fucking kidding me? The next squad were drunk and demanded with an oath, or they, they wanted to know who put the fire out. Mrs. Reed told them that she did it, and she'd do it again if she could. <laughs> uh, the order was given to hold that woman, so a villain grabbed her by the wrist, held her in a vice-like grip, while the others piled up bedding and books on a cotton lounge under the window and set that on fire, and remained inside until the smoke drove them all on the porch where Mrs. Reed was dragged, and they held her outside until the flames had reached a, an unreasonable, an unreasonably high point on the house out of the window, and they said, okay, bitch, you can have your home now if you can put the fire out. And they left. So she rushed through the smoke and into the bedroom, grabbed a pillow in each hand and protected, shoved against the windows, which was so burned that it fell onto the ground and the home was saved. So she just threw the burning shit out the window. There was another squad that came in, commanded by an officer who inquired for Mr. Reed, and she told him that he'd gone east for goods. Where was your store? She pointed to where Woodward's drugstore is now corner of Massachusetts and Henry Street and replied there, burning. One of the men in his squad immediately replied, yes, there had, there has some, someone gone east from the store, there had, it was PR Books who was then clerking for Mr. Reed, which showed how well posted they were and they had spies that had been there and done their work really well. Mrs. Reed said, you seem to be an officer, look at the house and at the burning store and say you have not punished us enough. The officer turned... To his men and gave the command, men, go away from here and tell all the other squads not to molest these premises anymore today. His family's been punished enough, and he remained on the porch for an hour and a half or so to make sure that his orders were followed. He was the only one Mrs. Reed saw that day that did not act like a barbarian, and this is believed to be the man of high respectability now living in Missouri. The last man that came was named Skeggs. Uh, to tell what he done... To tell what he done would make this story too long. He was fiendish and brutal. His stand was too long and was killed. The only one of the rebels known to have been killed. Jesus Christ. And it just goes on. I'm not going to fucking read another hour of... And the two oldest boys started to run for the hill. They fucking killed everybody that they could. And, um... Man, brutal shit. And that is known as the Lawrence Massacre. So, Frank James was there, Cole Younger was there, and it it was brutal. So, these guys, they were fucking hated. And this was a tit-for-tat thing. They, they killed them at the Lawrence Massacre because of that, that other one that happened, the Asocioso, Osioso, Ocotillo, whatever the fucking other one was where the federal troops killed 12 southern men and... They responded by fucking killing everybody. Punishment doesn't fit the crime, but whatever. So, just three months after the Lawrence raid, a party of Union soldiers invaded the Samuel Farm, which was the Jesse James establishment. And uh, if you'll remember, Samuel was the third husband of his mother. And they were looking for information about the location of Quantrill's camp because they knew that Frank James was a fucking writer. Jesse, who was only 15 at the time, was brutally questioned and uh, he was horse whipped repeatedly when he refused to answer the southern soldiers questions or said that he didn't know what would you have done Dr. Samuel who also denied knowing where the Raiders camp was located was dragged from the house and repeatedly uh, strung up by the neck from a tree in the yard and let down and then asked another question when he gave the same answer because he wasn't lying they strung him up again but somehow the good doctor managed to survive his interrogation no doubt, out of hatred and anger over this event, Jesse joined Bloody Bill Anderson guerrilla forces at the age of 16 as soon as he could. Bloody Bill was a Quantrill lieutenant who led the raid on Centralia, Missouri on September 27, 1864, where more than 100 armed guerrillas descended upon Centralia, a community of fewer than 100 people, intent on robbing the train. While waiting for the train, they terrorized the local civilians, as was the custom, robbed and burned stores, and killed civilians who attempted to defend their women. Defend them from what is unspecified, but I imagine it's probably exactly what you're thinking, and that sucks. The stage from Columbia came into the community, and so they robbed all the passengers on the stagecoach. 
And when the train finally arrived, 24 unarmed and wounded soldiers were dragged from the train by frenzied, uh, frenzied raiders, and they were murdered in front of all the horrified civilians and children in the town. The guerrillas then set the train station on fire, sacked the train, set fire to the train, and fired up the engines and sent it on its way with no crew on it to later crash and be destroyed on the train tracks. The band of guerrillas was, was followed by an experienced federal infantry unit led by Union Major A.V.E. Johnson. About three miles south of Centralia, the Union forces were what they called bushwhacked, which is when a bunch of fucking hillbillies spring out of the bushes and shoot you, I guess, by... Okay, so they were chasing these guys, they lost them into in a thicket, I would imagine, and they were bushwhacked by the band and were nearly annihilated. Over 120 federal troops were killed. Only three of the guerrilla troops were reported to have been killed that day at all. Both Frank and Jesse were part of this battle, though it's disputed that they took part in the massacre of unarmed soldiers earlier in the day. It was alleged that Jesse James shot and killed Union Major Johnson, and he's credited with taking the lives of seven or eight unarmed soldiers on that tragic day, as well as seven or eight armed soldiers. It's quite a few. In the late spring of 1865, Jesse James rode into Lexington, Missouri, carrying a white flag. <laughs> he was promptly shot in the chest when he attempted to surrender to the occupied Union troops. Afterward, he went to Rulo, Nebraska to recuperate from his wound before returning to Missouri. The vicious violence of the Civil War had taken its toll upon Missouri. A total of 1,162 battles and skirmishes were fought in the state during the official years of the Civil War which was more than in fucking Virginia and more than fucking Tennessee. Though the James family were slave owners, it was alleged, and it can be assumed, based on the actions of the slaves post-Civil War, that they were not as shitty to their slaves as other shit sacks that owned slaves during the time. And you can see this because the slaves stuck, they, they stayed on staff at the James farm after they'd been freed. It doesn't make it any better, but they supposedly allowed the African slaves to sleep in the house, which was, um, it, it was a big deal. They, no one really did that. It doesn't make it okay. But just judging on the fact that as free men and free women, they stayed on to work for these people, I think it speaks a little bit to the, the quality of their character. You know what I mean. Anyway, on that note, on that happy fucking note, this episode has gone substantially longer than I expected it would go. I expect Jesse James to be over and done with in one 45-minute episode. But there's no shortage of information on the James Gang. So be sure to tune back in next time to another exciting episode of Anthology of Horror where we will have far less gore horror of war stories and a lot more train robbing stories but I want to thank each and every one of you for continuing to tune in and for spreading the word if you think I deserve it please don't hesitate to rate me 5 stars on iTunes because it strokes my ego like a motherfucker and if not for the content purely for the fact that I have given you almost an hour and a half worth of material with no ads that's right, ad-free guarantee. You don't ever have to listen to me talk about boner pills or try trying to sell you anything. Now, do you ever wake up tired in the morning? Yes. Not here. So, I gave a shout-out to Texas last time because I noticed a pretty aggressive expansion, and I want to thank whoever's in Texas and telling people about it or playing it at work. I'm not sure which one, but thank you very much because I noticed that. And I also noticed a new one spring up on the map, and that is New Jersey. And thank you very much to people of New Jersey, and thank you very much to whoever is telling people about it in the state of New Jersey. I appreciate it. And for all of you new listeners, for those of you that don't know, I do have an open-door policy when it comes to this podcast. You can... Uh, send me an Instagram message and tell me how bad I suck or how much you hate me at Instagram.com slash Duke Landis 17. That is Instagram.com slash Duke D-U-K-E Landis L-A-N-D-I-S 1-7 as in 
17. And, uh, like I said, if you have a suggestion, I have an open-door policy. I'd love to hear your questions, comments, concerns, hate spiel about me, uh, what I could do better, if I could improve on the editing. Please don't hesitate to tell me, because I've never done this before. It's my first time. So, thank you very much for tuning back in. Please continue to spread the word. See you next time, but until then, stay spooky.